0: It's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I can't tell you what a thrill it is to be able to sit in the front and uh, and hear you singing behind me. It's really encouraging. Um, I'm grateful for it. We're continuing to look at Luke. We're looking at the life and the testimony of uh, and the ministry of Jesus given to us in the Gospel of Luke, and we're dropping back a few chapters from where we were uh, a few weeks ago. As we were in Holy Week and Easter, we were looking at stories that surrounded the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and now we're kind of picking up where we, uh, uh, where we left off when we jumped ahead to, to hit those stories. So we're in Luke chapter 18, and we're in the journey narrative. That's the, the teachings of Jesus while he was still making his way uh, to Jerusalem. And before we dig into this one, uh, I think it's important that we talk about something that might feel to some like coded Christian language or like something you've kind of got to figure out or maybe it's something that really smart people might know about, but maybe I don't, you know, <laughs> something like that. But, um, but Jesus has been talking a lot about the kingdom of God, that this, and he, that's the language he uses. The kingdom of God uh, came with himself, that when he arrived, he brought the kingdom with him. And, uh, and the idea that, that uh, what we're to imagine is that the kingdom of God is, is taking over the world and, uh, and that all things will be reordered according to God's will as he intended in the beginning. And so, um, so if that's true, then what we're invited to imagine with the kingdom of God is a place where, where, uh, where God's will is established. And so God hates things like injustice. And so we're to imagine a world where justice is pure and true. And God hates death. And so we're to imagine a world where there is no death. Uh, and, and, uh, and so we're, we're invited, as we hear these Jesus talk about the, the kingdom of God, we're invited to consider uh, the wonderful reordering of the world according to, to God's will. But all, as, as all kind of big thoughts like that and big teaching like that uh, hits us, I I, I think that invites a question. That if God's kingdom really arrived with Jesus, then how are we 2,000 years later uh, supposed to understand the world in, in which there's obviously so much still wrong with it? And how am I supposed to understand myself as in there's obviously still so much wrong with me? And, and, and uh, I want to introduce to you a phrase um, that, that we like to talk about a lot, and it's called the already and the not yet. And it's a way of understanding this concept. It's that Jesus' kingdom, God's kingdom really did already arrive with Jesus. It, it, it is here. But it won't be until he returns that, his king, that the kingdom is fully consummated. That's the not yet. So there's an already in the not yet, and I bring this up, we are living in the not yet, and I bring this up because we live out our days under the relentless tension of the not yet. Often what this means is that um, there's so much that's different about us than the world around us because we're living in this already and and we're looking forward to to that kingdom that hasn't quite arrived yet. It often means our ethics are different or the way that we're thinking is different, that our affections are different. We're longing for a world uh, that is to come, not necessarily the world that we're in. And it often means that these things are different about us, call us to live in stark contrast to, uh, to some of the common thinking. It's so much easier to live within the grain of the community, but there are times where we can't do that and maintain faithfulness to Jesus Christ at the same time. And I just want to acknowledge that that's something that's hard about us and and that's hard about our identity now as we wait for Jesus to come back. And the question of our lives is this one. How do I live faithfully within the tension of the not yet, the, the tension that the not yet creates? How do I carry myself as I wait for Jesus to come back? And I'm talking about this. It's kind of a big thought. I'm Uh, that we could spend a long time talking about it. But I'm talking about this because Jesus. this is something that Jesus is speaking to when he gives us this parable. Uh, He's talking about how his disciples, what it looks like, something of what it looks like for his disciples to carry themselves faithfully while we wait for the Son of Man to return. Look at it with me here. This is the parable of the persistent widow, Um, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Sorry. Sorry. Adversary. I know how to read. (laughs) For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who, will, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, you know the state of our hearts. You know the state of our minds. You know the state of my mind. You know what our weeks have looked like, uh, and yet, in all of that, you have gathered us together and arranged us under the authority of your word, and so I pray that you would help us to hear what you're saying to us through this passage. Uh, I pray that you would help us to be present, uh, to think well, to come before it humbly, and I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hope in you, Lord Jesus, our King. And help me with all my muddled thinking. I pray that you would help me to serve you and to serve these friends well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's no way I can do this justice, so I'm not even going to try. In my experience, whenever a pastor tries to impersonate a comedian, especially a brilliant comedian, it does not go well. Um, so I'm just going to ask you to trust me on this one. It was hilarious. Um, but uh, a number of years ago uh, on, on Saturday Night Live, Kenan Thompson, who um, is just such a funny man, uh, he is I'm still with Saturday Night Live, I think, but it, this was like early on in his uh, time there. He would uh, play th- this guest contributor on their version of the news Uh, And he was a financial expert that would show up. Some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, And and what he would do is he would call our attention to the desperate state of America's uh, uh, financial uh, status or financial situation. And he would tell everybody that it needs to be fixed. Uh, And he would say things like, fix it, fix it, fix it. Somebody needs to get down in there and they need to fix what's wrong. And they would ask him questions like... Uh, what, uh, like, what would you suggest that they, they they do? And he says, well, it's simple. You go in, you identify a problem, and then you fix it. And then you identify another problem, and then you fix that. And you just proceed until it has been fixed. And, uh, and I just it's just the face that he made and the pause. I mean, it was just brilliant. But what he was doing when he said that, um, when he was making this joke, was he was poking fun at those who would suggest that there are simple fixes for a complex situation. I think he had people in mind. I think he had like certain people that might go on the news and offer their own solutions to to complex situations that he was poking fun at them. And I, I don't know who when he was doing this, but the truth is, is that in many ways, we're all playing the role or sometimes around somebody else who might be playing the role of a simplistic problem solver. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody tell me, hey, I'm not sharing this with you because I want you to solve my problem but I, or give me advice. I just, I just want you to be with me in this. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe pray for me. Uh, and uh, so some of us are, are problem solvers. I can confess guilt to that. And, uh, and there's this mentality that we can have that when we're around somebody else's circumstance, that we might presume to to have the wisdom that they need or the solution that they need. And in doing so, we can actually trivialize whatever it is they're enduring. And there's an arrogance to this. Uh, And I uh, I, I, I understand it well. And the truth is, is that there are some problems that can't be solved. I, I... I can't. I, there are only a few absolutes that I feel like I can give you um, in the day to day here, but um, but some problems can be fixed, and we can be grateful about that. But there are some problems we will face in life that can only be endured, whose challenges are greater than 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 we can than we can match, or, or our friends can match. And there are times when in our most courageous vulnerability, when we stare during seasons, when we have to stare that reality in the face, it can lead to a sense of futility or deep discouragement. And I'm talking about that because I wonder if in some way the widow, this widow in this story might have felt that way. As she returns again and again to a powerful but indifferent man who will not listen to her case. And I think when Jesus is speaking this story, when he tells the disciples this story, he's actually speaking to a deeply felt reality that many of us face, that we often face. And what I want to say is that when Jesus tells this story, he's saying that he knows what we want and he's giving us things that he wants us to know, he knows what we want, and he wants us to know, and things he wants us to know. Now, you, in many ways, you can see the desires—you uh, can see the desires of our own hearts—in what the widow was up to in this passage. Like she's so persistent, returning again and again to a judge because she simply wants something. And there are many things I think that we see in her that we can identify with. And the first thing that she's looking for is, uh, is a presence that matters. It, like, it's well known that widows were among some of the most defenseless people in Hebrew society. All throughout Scripture, God is calling his people to take care of the widows that were in your midst because it was simply very hard for them uh, to, give, to take care of themselves. And so there was this repeated call over and over and over again, to God's people to take care of widows. And uh, when during times of judgment, one of the things that God was often indicting his people for was their failure to take care of widows. And it's entirely likely that this widow who's fighting for her own self is pursuing this judge all over town. This judge neither fears God nor man. And she's probably daily going into the courts to get company with him. She's probably finding him in the marketplace, maybe even going to his house, challenging him in front of his friends, or even when he's alone. And what she's doing when she's doing this is she's relentlessly trying to cultivate a presence that matters to this guy. She's making up for quality with quantity, just over and over and over again going after him. And so she's hoping that her presence might at some point mean something to this judge. So she's looking for a presence that matters. She's also looking for a voice that is heard. If you look at verse 2, Jesus describes this judge as somebody who neither feared God nor respected man. That is, a, that is really something to say about a person, right? Like that is quite a character. Um, to him, to somebody like this, no voices matter to them. Like, no uh, voices carry any more weight to, to a judge like this than his own. And he only cares about what he cares about. And so she is repeatedly casting her requests on him, hoping that at some point her voice might break through. And in this society, there were really only three ways that you could persuade a judge in this situation. The first would be to bribe them which required money, she probably didn't have that. The second would be to threaten them, which requires power in some way. And she almost certainly didn't have that. And then the third way would be to offer a plea. And so what she is doing is she is using her voice, really the only tool that she has in her toolbox. It's the only thing that she can do and maintain integrity. And while she's doing this, really she's searching in the desperate search for a voice that matters. And then finally, she's looking for an appeal that is honored. She's looking for what one might call restorative justice. Look at verse 3. She says, this this is what she's asking for. She says, give me justice against my adversary. Look, when you look at this, this is not a legal opportunist looking to game the system in her favor. This is someone who's asking for justice that she is owed. And uh, she's owed something and she's being taken advantage of because, probably because of her status, And, uh, and she's just asking the judge to honor the demands of justice. That's all she wants. And so what we see in this, in, this, uh, in this widow is a presence that matters, a voice that is heard, and an appeal that is honored. She is spending her days in the search for things. And, and as I look at this, the, this all just seems very human to me. Like, who, who doesn't want those things? Who, who doesn't want to matter when you walk into a room? Who doesn't want to see their voice affect have an effect and who doesn't want to make appeals that are answered in their favor like these are the desires of our own hearts too and so we sympathize with this widow we, we look at her with eyes of compassion because in so many ways uh jesus is speaking to some of the same desires of our hearts it's just very very human And it occurs to me that over the last year, several years, we've seen an uptick in some of the public manifestations of these desires too. And and, and no matter how you feel about, you know, protests or what's being protests, every single one of those desires are found there, right? Like you've got people gathering together they're trying to cultivate a presence that matters. You see that there. They're joining their voices into a common voice, and they're trying to be heard. And, and usually they're making an appeal, right? But the difference between that and what we see in this passage is that this widow is all alone in her search. Like she she is all alone and is subject to the indifferent inclinations of an unrighteous judge. And I don't know about you, but that just sounds like a very scary place to be. And I wonder how often we might feel that way sometimes. Like how often we might feel as if we are on the hunt for a presence and a voice and an appeal and we are all alone. And like our prayers are just bouncing off God like Teflon, like they're not being heard. And that we are subject to the, to the inclinations of a, of, of a whimsical, powerful person. And, and one of the things that I want you to see Jesus is doing just by constructing the, the very setting of this story is he is telling us, I see you. I know what you want. I know what you are looking for. There is a a precious story. Um, It's a powerful, well, it starts out as a very sad story. Early in Exodus, um, you have the people laboring under slavery, under powerful Egyptians. And they have literally no power. They have no ability to fend for themselves. It's this incredibly sad story of a, of a people who are laboring unto their deaths. And in their despair, this is in Exodus chapter 2, it says that they prayed. And, and literally, the text says that they groaned toward God. And at the end of chapter 2, you see this verse, and it just stops me in my tracks every time I see it. It says that God heard the groaning of his people God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God knew. And the profound point that Jesus is making with this story is to tell us that something something that has been true from the very beginning is that God's people don't groan helplessly, despairing of ever being heard. That our desires are very familiar to him. And that God is not like the unjust judge who doles out Justice, grudgingly, whenever he feels like he has to, but that he hears the cries of his people, and they matter to him, and so he is attending to things that he knows that we want, with encouragements that he wants us to know to like be convinced of deep in our gut. And some parables you have to like discern the the, the meaning of, right? Or you, you have to like read. You know, the, the author's interpretation of the parable in another place. Like, and there are even times where the disciples have to like circle back and talk to Jesus and say, hey, what, what was that thing that um, you meant when you told that story? But that's not the case with this one. Actually, uh, Luke leads with the whole point of this parable right at the very beginning. What does it say? It's he's telling his disciples who are enduring the relentless tension of living in the not-yet to pray and not lose heart. That's what he's saying you do. That as you wait for Jesus to come back, you pray and not lose heart. And why should we not lose heart? Why should actual encouragement uh, characterize us in the face of all kinds of reasons that we have for despair or discouragement? Well, because Jesus wants you to know that God sees you. That your presence matters to him. In this passage, Jesus is making a lesser to greater argument. That's a, the that's a kind of rhetorical tool that Jesus is using here. You see him do this in other places. One of the more famous ones is when he's teaching us that, that we don't have to be anxious. He, he is saying that, um, look at the sparrows who, uh, who, um, who know where their next meal is coming from. And then he says, and how much more does God care about you? That's a lesser to greater argument. And and one of the things he's saying is that if the judge was taking pains to make sure that the widow is not seen, that Jesus is telling us how much more God sees the struggles of his people. God sees the struggles of his people. And your presence matters to him. And in many ways, the whole ministry of Jesus is to remind us that God sees us. That when you look at the the life of Jesus, he is the one who came to to be with us. He is the one who endured what we endure. He is the one who suffers in ways we might not ever suffer. And, And when Jesus comes to be with us, one of the things he's telling us is that I see you. I understand Jesus is also telling us that God hears your prayers, that your voice matters to him. And all week long, I've been trying to remember a quote. I came across it in seminary. I couldn't dig it up, and Matt couldn't either. And if Matt can't find a quote, it's not findable. But I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said this. He was teaching about the, um, the profound implications, the transcendent reality of our union with Christ, that, that when you are when you uh, have faith in Christ, that you are literally joined in union to him. And one of the implications of that, Edward said, was that when you pray to God, God doesn't just hear your voice, but he also hears the voice of his son who is ever living to intercede for you. That God hears you. And Jesus is saying that God hears your prayer in your union with Christ. You have a voice that is heard in the holy temple. And there's so many implications to this. There's so much that could be said about this, but I want to at least say this. It occurs to me that these things cooperate with each other. Prayer and not losing heart. Like Jesus is saying is that one of the ways we fight against despair is to Pray that we don't miss that. Prayer reminds us who we look to, the strength of the one who is mighty to save us and the joy that he takes in rescuing his people. And the more we bring our needs before God, the more we fill ourselves, fill our hearts with all the reasons that we have to hope. And it makes us less vulnerable to despair. And so on its face, this counsel from Jesus just kind of makes sense, even though we need to hear this over and over and over again. But here's the other thing that needs to be said about how to understand this. This is intimate business. I mean, this is incredibly intimate business, that God is inviting his people to bring your needs before him. He's telling us that these things, that our prayers only matter to God because simply he loves us. And that the gift of prayer is this gift of love that God gives us that reminds us of the deep relational connection that we get to have with God. And if you want intimacy, then it doesn't get much more intimate than this. When you go home this afternoon, I want you to open up your Bibles. And I want you to read Romans chapter 8. And it's this wonderful thesis that that Paul offers us that tells us about what God sees when he looks at you. And when you come to verse 26, I want you to slow down and and just meditate on all all the things that this can mean. Because Paul says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells you, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself is praying for you with groaning too deep for words. One of the things that prayer does is it reminds you of a deep, unbreakable, rich, and unflinching relationship that God has with you and that you matter to him. You have value because God says so. And Jesus closes this whole thing with a promise. Look at verse seven and eight. This is the way Jesus ends with this promise. He says, will not God give justice to his elect? He's saying justice will come. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Isaiah 54 says that vindication or the giving of justice is the heritage of God's people. That even though we will endure seasons now, of suffering and lament and loss, and we will endure times of injustice, the promise of Jesus is that one day justice will come and he will vindicate his people. And that promise is guaranteed by the death of Jesus. He guarantees it. And there's a lot, that, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of confusion as we come to a close. There are a lot of questions that surround Jesus' promise that justice will come speedily. That God will not tarry long, and as we live in what feels like a never-ending "not yet," sometimes this verse matters a lot to us, doesn't it? How long, O oh Lord? And as I was studying, I'm not kidding. There were like 13 versions of like theory. Sorry, 13 like theories of what that that might mean. You know, and I I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, there's some plausible, some not. I, I, And I'm not going to presume to know the mysteries of time and eternity, but I do know this. I do know that I was looking at pictures of my children uh, when they were much younger, wondering where all the time went. And I also know this, that all over the Psalms and in many of our hymns, you'll find the cry, how long, O Lord. That is not just a cry. That's just not, that's not just something that we sing. But that is the prayer of the faithful disciple, not losing heart. And I don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but I do know this, that that's the moment when your prayer will change from how long, O Lord, to at last he is here. He is the one who holds me fast. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you'll, you'll, uh, you'll hold us. That these days which, which can feel difficult and strained and wearying, we are your people and you love us so. And so I pray that you would encourage us, hold us, and fortify us in these truths. And sink the truths of the, this, this, deep, this, this wonderful story deep in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.